morning. <clears throat> we are headed to the last two verses of the passage you just heard read, but I need to back up and uh, get a running start. In fact, I want us to back up quite a bit, all the way to the beginning, <clears throat> to Genesis 2. Genesis 1 speaks to us about the creation of the universe, and Genesis 2 speaks to us of a place called Eden, the Garden of Eden, a specific part of creation. The Garden of Eden was the place where God dwelt with human beings. It was situated in the overlap of heaven and earth, as we talked about last summer in our journey through the first 12 chapters of Genesis. And most of you know the story pretty well. The serpent deceived the woman and the man. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thus breaking the one prohibition, violating the one prohibition that God gave them. They made a choice, we are told, because they did not believe that God was trustworthy. The serpent told them that if they would eat of the tree, they would be like God. They could make their own decisions about what was right and wrong, and so they took matters into their own hands. They, were, they who were made in God's image made themselves into idols and worshipped their own being, their own ability, and their own wisdom. They sinned. Then we read this. Genesis 3, 23 and 24. So the Lord God banished them from, banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground for which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. God placed the cherubim, plural, cherub is singular, cherubim, plural, and a flaming sword to guard the way back to the tree of life. In their sinful state, the, the, these first humans could not be allowed to go and eat of the tree of life, thus living forever in that state. It was as much an act of mercy as it was punishment. Now, for a little refresher from last summer, we, I showed you these very slides, but I'm going to show them to you again. Um, this is a cherubim, the way we think of them. It's a sentimental Valentine's Day picture. It doesn't come close. It doesn't come close to what the ancient world actually believed cherubim looked like. Look at it. That is not going to keep you from entering the Garden of Eden. You toss him a cookie and you're in, right? Not scary at all. No, that does not resemble the cherubim the way the ancient world understood them. This does. A little scarier. Ain't nobody getting by him. We'll come back to them in a few minutes. Much later in the biblical narrative, God gives Moses instructions on how to build a tabernacle, a tent in which God will dwell with his people. Now before that, remember, the place where God dwelt with his people was the Garden of Eden, the overlap of heaven and earth. In Exodus 25, God has a new plan. So he says to Moses in verses 8 and 9, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. The tabernacle was meant to move with the people as they wandered in the wilderness so they could know that Emmanuel, God with us, was with them wherever they went. This tabernacle was supposed to be modeled, God says to Moses, after a pattern. This pattern was modeled after the geography of the Garden of Eden. Now, we can't go deeply into the detail here. 
Uh, but if you want to know more about that detail and how the, those things work together, you can go all the way back to a sermon I preached May 15th, 2022, which I have linked in the Bible app live event if you want to take a look at it. We get much more in detail about that. The main point for this morning is to note that the Garden of Eden was a place where heaven and earth overlapped, where humanity could dwell with God and God could dwell with us. In the same way, the tabernacle, the place of worship, was a place where the people could meet with God, was also seen as a place where heaven and earth overlapped. Eden and the tabernacle both were places where God could be with us. This tabernacle will be like a foreign, an embassy in a foreign land. When the people step into the tabernacle, they are stepping, the geography changes, they are stepping into uh, heaven. They're on heavenly soil. The same way that an American embassy in Germany, you step in the gates there, you're technically on U.S. soil. So the tabernacle is modeled on Eden, and the tabernacle prefigures the temple, a more permanent dwelling for God, so the pattern continues. I'm going to give you just one example. There are more that I've given in the past, but just one. It's a particularly easy one to kind of picture. And I've shared this before. There was a thick, heavy, tall curtain in the tabernacle and in the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. That curtain was meant to remind worshipers that they were not allowed to go beyond that veil, that curtain. Behind that curtain, heaven and earth overlapped. Embroidered into that, onto that curtain, in its fabric, were cherubim guarding the way, as they had guarded the way back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. And this is the curtain that was torn in two from top to bottom the moment that Jesus died on the cross. In Mark 15, verses 37 to 38, once Jesus breathed his last, the work was finished, the barrier was removed, the curtain was torn, And the cherubim who had guarded the way were dispatched. They were relieved of their duty. The way to Eden was back open again. From Eden to the tabernacle to the temple, where next? Where does Emmanuel, God with us, where does he go next? In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, we are told that the Word, which was another way to refer to the preexistent Christ, the Word became one of us. Uh, John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The, the word translated as made his dwelling is the verb form of the word tabernacle. Jesus tabernacled among us. Jesus was the dwelling place of God on earth. Jesus was the place where heaven and earth overlap. John 2, one chapter later. Jesus has gone into the temple. He's flipped over tables. He's driven the animals out. He's generally made a scene and quite a mess of things. And then we read this, John 2, verse 18 to 21. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you give us to show to, to prove your authority to, to do all this? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Eden became the tabernacle. The tabernacle became the temple. The temple became, Jesus became the tabernacle. Jesus became the temple. Are we tracking? One more step yet to go in this progression. And some of you are going, are you ever going to get to 1 Corinthians chapter 3? Yes, I am. We're going to walk through it now. We're going to walk through that passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The church in the city of Corinth was a bit of a mess. And while there are many different challenges that they were having, one of the ones that for our purposes that we want to focus on today was 
all about the very nature of the church. In five or six places in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul refers to the church as the body of Christ. And every part of that body, in his metaphor, every part of that body has a gift, has a place, has a task, uh, and a reason to be there. And this body is one body, even though it is made up of many parts. It is one body, and what is truly one should not be divided. Division and disunity are a serious issue in the Corinthian church. One of the things the Corinthians were divided over was leadership. Way back at the very beginning of the letter, the Apostle Paul says this in chapter 1, verse 10 to 13. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas or Peter. Still another, I, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? So the church was divided over which leaders were the wisest and the best, and therefore which we should all be following. And this kind of division, Paul says, ought not be the case. Skipping ahead to our passage today from chapter 3, we see Paul returning to this issue of people lining up behind different leaders claiming their leader was better and wiser than the other leaders. And this kind, of, this kind of behavior, Paul says, not to put too fine a point on, is infantile. They are not yet ready for solid food as mature followers of Jesus. They're mere infants. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 3 to 4. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? I want us to note that the first, the primary sign Paul identifies with spiritual immaturity is disunity. The first, the primary indicator of spiritual immaturity is disunity. Not bad doctrine. Not some gross sin, though that was also very present in the church in Corinth. No, the first clue that these people aren't mature believers in Christ is their disunity. They can't get along with one another. They're fighting over stupid things. They are divided. Notice how Paul puts it in verse 3. Are you not acting like mere humans? Verse 4. Are you not mere human beings? What an interesting choice of words. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Then in verses 5 and following, Paul speaks to the true unity of all things. All of these leaders play a part in the work of God. They have done nothing wrong. But you, you who put your trust in them, you who use your trust in them to divide up the body of Christ over their leadership, you are the problem. You are acting like mere human beings beings now the implication in paul's words is that in fact they are more than mere human beings they are more than mere human beings they're just not acting like it so after laying out in the verses that follow various gifts and assigned tasks to each of these leaders paul says of them and of himself in verse 9 for we're co-workers we the leaders we are co-workers in god's service you are god's field god's building 
We, Paul says, the leaders that you are lining up behind and dividing over, we are co-workers. We get along. We are not the problem. And then Paul mixes metaphors. You, however, you are God's field, God's building. This is yet another way of saying what he's going to say uh, later on in chapter 12 about them being the body of Christ. They are in this together. They are one and if they divide over anything, they are acting like something less than they truly are. They are acting like mere human beings. And if they are not mere human beings, what are they finally? Verses 16 and 17. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred. And you together, and you together are that temple. You see what's happened here. We've gone from God dwelling with us in the Garden of Eden, then to God dwelling with us in the tabernacle, and then in the temple, and then in Jesus, and now in us. You yourselves are God's temple. You together are that temple. Verses 3 and 4, Paul wrote, Look, when you quarrel over leaders and you divide up the unity of the body of the Christ, are you not acting like mere human beings? And now he answers more fully, You are not mere human beings. You are the very temple of God, and God's Spirit lives in you. You are sacred, you are set apart, not to be messed with, not to be trifled with, not to be divided. For to divide the temple of God is to destroy it. One scholar I read a while back said that the first heresy we see at work in the New Testament is disunity. Not a doctrinal error, but disunity. It was all about destroying and damaging what God had made into one in the death and resurrection of his son. And based on how often the Apostle Paul talks about disunity, it was indeed a big problem and at the top of his hit list of heresies that needed to be dealt with. And if Paul were writing letters to the churches today, there's no doubt in my mind that he would look at the church in the United States of America and the disunity that is at work, especially over the last three or four years, and he would say, to quote Bob Newhart in a great skit you should look up, Stop it! Just Google Bob Newhart, stop it, you'll find it. Stop it! As a reminder, in this series, we are using Psalm 27, verse 4 as a jumping off point. We're spending a long time using that psalm, that verse, to send us off into the pages of Scripture and see where we can find images of this one thing that the psalmist is seeking and asking of God. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. These past few weeks we have looked at um, a few passages that have helped us gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That's the phrase we're kind of sitting in right now. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, we are told to fix our eyes on Jesus. Last week, Pastor Kristen reminded us to sit with Jesus as Mary sat at his feet and listened to him in Luke 10. We are to sit, we are to listen to him, we are to hang on his every word. For this is the place where it all begins. Everything else we might be and do and become flows out of time sitting and being with Jesus. 
But there are two other ways we can gaze upon the beauty of the Lord that we're going to talk about in this series. And we're going to explore them this week and next. This week, as we consider what it means to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord while we are in the house of the Lord, how are we to do this? Dr. Kurt Thompson, in his excellent book, The Soul of Desire, was one of the people last year that God used to draw my attention to Psalm 27, verse 4, because it happened over and over again. And that is what has brought us to this place. And Kurt Thompson looks at this a little differently than we are right now, but he tipped me off to something very profound and important. In his case, he was considering what it meant to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our lives, and he asked, what exactly does this mean? This is what he says. Surely he doesn't mean he literally wants to live in a tabernacle of worship around the clock. How, how would he play golf? Certainly he's not speaking of finding joy living in a tent. This must be a metaphor for something else. He must really be expressing that he wants the worship of God to be the center of his life, as if he wants what happens in the house of the Lord, the worship of Yahweh, to be the center of his dwelling, the gyroscope of his soul. He's not really talking about living in a church building so much as he is longing for what happens in the church to be the place where he lives. Where Kurt Thompson lands and where I think scripture lands too, is that to dwell in the house of the Lord and to gaze on the beauty of the Lord in his temple is to dwell with and to gaze upon the people God has called to himself. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord in his temple is to dwell with and to gaze upon the people God has called to himself. For you yourselves are God's temple. God's house. The late comedian Gallagher used to say that one out of three people is ugly, so if you look to your left or you look to your right, you don't see it. Guess what? <laughs> but the Apostle Paul teaches us that when it comes to the people of God, when it comes to our sisters and brothers in Christ, the people in this room, the people joining us online, the people meeting all over this country at this hour or thereabouts, when it comes to the body of Christ, the people of Christ. Three out of three people are the temple of God together. Look to your right, look to your left, look in the mirror. We ourselves are God's building. We are God's temple. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. I hate it when speakers tell, preachers and speakers tell people, turn to your neighbor and say this. I'm an introvert. I hate it. So I'm not going to tell you to do that. You'll be relieved. That is for extroverts. They love that. Just under half the people who go to church in the United States are introverts. And we don't like to be forced to turn to another person, especially a stranger, and say anything. Saw a meme on the internet that commented on the season of Lent in which we find ourselves now, the 40 days leading to Easter. Simply said, Lent, because the extroverts can't have all the holidays. So I won't ask you to turn to your neighbors and say something to the people on your left or right, but maybe later, when we're singing, when we're receiving communion together, look around. Look around. Gaze upon the beauty of the Lord in the faces of your sisters and your brothers. 
Yes, we are to fix our eyes on Jesus. Yes, we should sit and listen to him and hang on every word he says. And by the grace of God, we also can gaze upon the beauty of the Lord when we gaze upon, when we spend time with, when we come to more deeply know one another as followers of Jesus. We are the ones, we ourselves, in whom God's spirit lives. After all, even before that, from the very start, we were made in God's image. We are God's temple. We may not realize it. But we gazed upon the beauty of the Lord last week as we ate together across the parking lot and fellowshiped around tables and had fun bidding on desserts and supporting the youth of ECC. You may not know it, but if you're a part of a life group, we do it there too. We gaze upon one another. We grow together. We hear one another's stories, one another's burdens, concerns, and praises, and we pray for one another. And we do it every week when we come here to gather in this place. If we will make the time to do it. Get here a bit early. Drink coffee and talk with one another. Stay here a few minutes later past worship. Connect with one another. Make it a practice to go out to lunch with one another. Invite one another into your homes. Spend time with one another. Gaze upon the beauty of the Lord in God's people. Let us gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, sisters and brothers, for we are God's temple, and what we have here is sacred. Practically speaking, what does this look like? What do we do? How do we respond? First, let us give thanks that we are not in this alone. Let us pray for one another. There's a whole list of people in the Bible app live event each week, a whole list of them that need prayer in this congregation. If you don't have the Bible app, that again is what it looks like. That's how to get it. And you will find in our live event, just above where the sermon begins, you will find a link that it simply says prayer items. You click on that and you will see a list of people who are in need of prayer. Second, let us practice the one another's that are found in the pages of the New Testament. There are 59 one another statements in the New Testament. And they teach us how to care for one another as followers of Jesus. I've linked a PDF with each of these one another statements in the Bible app as well. Read them. Become familiar with them. Practice them as a way that we can together gaze upon the beauty of the Lord by loving and caring for one another. Finally, a reminder. As we gaze upon one another as sisters and brothers in Christ, let us strive to keep the unity of the Spirit. We don't make the unity. We don't create the unity. God has done that. We are simply invited to, commanded to keep the unity of the Spirit. Let us not quarrel with one another. Let us not gossip or divide off from one another over doctrine or politics. For we are God's house. We are God's temple. And we are sacred. What we have here, imperfect though it is, is sacred. Would you join me in a time of silence? I will close this in prayer as we prepare our hearts for communion together. Good and gracious God, we thank you 
for the gift of one another. Forgive us when we take one another for granted, when we take the reality that we are one body for granted, when we do damage to the body of Christ. God, help us to hold our tongue when we need to. Help us to see one another as people made in your image, as people loved and called by you, as people who are sisters and brothers. Help us to pray for one another, to care for one another, and to gaze upon one another for the miracle that we are, your temple. Lord, unite us, we pray. Help us to keep that unity. Help us to keep the unity of the Spirit in every way. As I look ahead to the next couple of years, and I know what this nation has gone through, I know how divided we are as a nation, I know how your church is divided, I pray, oh God, that you would begin to heal those divisions. And to whatever degree you want to do it, I pray you begin with us here. Help us to love one another. Help us to act like more than humans. To know that we were made for and meant for more than that. Help us to be your people in every situation, in every conversation. Help us to love one another as you have loved us. In Jesus' name.